So let's take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one, and we are continuing to look at these passages here in verse five, six, and seven. So I like to read verse five, six, and seven this morning. Second Peter. Chapter 1, verse 5, says, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, And in your brotherly kindness, love. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, again this morning as we approach the word of God, that you would continually help us understand it. So, Lord, it become a reality in our life in the fact that we are living these qualities out, that we're growing in them, that we're adding to them that we're increasing in them. And Lord, I know that when we do that, it encourages us to see that spiritual growth. And when we see our own spiritual growth, Lord, we get stronger in the faith, we get bolder in our witness, and we get more confident in the very person and character of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we know the Spirit of God wants to and will make us into the image of Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we cooperate with that, we would see these qualities become more evident in our life, and then all the old stuff drop away until the new takes place. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been saying in first uh, in Second Peter here that Christians have everything already that they need to grow in godliness, that is the goal of the Holy Spirit. We already looked at what God has done. We have been looking at what Christians are actually to do. We are to do these things, and we are to take this human side of salvation quite seriously, and we are to put the strenuous effort into our spiritual development uh, because that is the Christian goal. And as it is the Christian goal, there's seven qualities we are to grow in. Two are the foundational qualities, and five are the directional qualities, that these are the qualities that help to form the image of Christ in our Christian character. So these qualities deserve our utmost effort. Also, these qualities ultimately lead us to have assurance of our salvation. That's really where they lead, because we see that God is working in our life, and it just shows us that we are one of God's kids, and it becomes evident in what he's doing in our life, and what we're now desiring that we didn't desire before. These two foundational qualities, verse 5, moral excellence, and then knowledge, and of course, we are growing in a higher knowledge of respect and care and humility for God. Christian reverence rests really 
upon the knowledge we have of God's holy character and the knowledge we have been given by God in the plan of redemption, we're growing more in understanding what he did, and then also the knowledge that we have been given by God in God's plan for the future. We are heading somewhere. We are going somewhere. We are not stagnant. As believers, we are actually growing. Now, these qualities, too, will help us not to be deceived, and it will keep us from being gullible when we hear other things being taught. So we are going to be growing in these things in discernment, knowing what God's way is, and we want to know what that is. But just considering that for a moment, the gullibility of people. There was one story that I read that, uh, that said that many intelligent people possess amazing abilities to know what is true in their particular area of study. For example, a famous 19th century French mathematician was also a professor, was trapped into buying a total of 27,340 letters for $30,000. Now, these letters were allegedly written by the resurrected Lazarus to Peter, to Mary Magdalene, and to a Gaelic doctor and tend to Jesus Christ. But the surprise is that the letters were all written in modern French on contemporary paper, so in other words, they were fake. Fake news. They even had it back then. So it was false, but people were gullible to believe that. Then there was another story about a man who people that would believe everything they read as true. A young reporter from Connecticut went to work on that thought, and this reporter named Lewis Stone for nearly two decades invented and sold stories throughout America about such freaks of nature as a tree that produced baked apples, a squirrel that brushed his master's shoes every morning, and a cow owned by two people that was so modest that she would not allow a man to milk her. That was during the late 19th century. Of course, it was harder to check things out back then, but people actually would believe these things. He became very popular, made a lot of money, but he was found out to be a liar, and they exposed him as the winst the winced liar, which, of course, Winstead, Connecticut, became famous for his birthplace today. But what what happened, again, is that it was all fake. His audience was very gullible and undiscerning. Now, you heard this before. You can fool some of the people some of the time. Some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Now, all of this may be uh, really a practical bit of wisdom for the 
politician or the business executive, but when it comes to religious deception, the masses are universally gullible. That's why Peter says the many will follow their false teaching because it's not packaged as false teaching. It's actually packaged as the truth. So adding to your faith these qualities will give you a stability and a discernment that you would not be deceived by false teaching because you would know what the truth is. You will, you will not be gullible for every wind that is flying in and out of uh, any particular society or culture at any given time, you're not going to buy into it or buy it or just be overtaken by it because you're going to evaluate it, you're going to look at it, you're going to be discerning. So these foundational qualities, that of moral excellence and knowledge, leads to the directional qualities, giving us direction in life, and that's self-control, where we would have control over who we are, what we think, our passions and desires. And then last week, I looked at patient endurance uh, or steadfastness, that two things can be included in the word perseverance. First, perseverance really is a basic attitude. It's a frame of mind to be patient or to be steadfast. And also, secondly, it is a it is something in which we have... Uh, we adhere to a course of action in spite of difficulties and testings, and so therefore we persevere through them, we endure through them, and we gain fortitude when we do that. So the term perseverance gives the believer the heads up that the Christian life will have its difficulties, it will have its troubles, it will have its valleys. Matter of fact, I, I believe that we spend more time in the valley. That's where we learn the lessons. It will have its trials, it will have its victories, it will have its battles, but we also know that in thinking that, that it's not going to be a smooth road into the kingdom of God. It's going to be a rocky road. It's going to have many potholes. It's going to have many obstacles, but as we're growing in the Lord, we can navigate around those obstacles and through those obstacles and through those trials still intact and even stronger at the other end because of what Christ is actually doing in our life. So remember that patient endurance and steadfastness is the willing, courageous acceptance by God of everything that life can do to us and then take what he has given to us and use it as a stepping stone upward for Christian growth and stability. The assumption after considering the adding to our faith patience, the assumption is that walking on the path of perseverance develops a strong faith, which leads to the next thing that we add to our faith, which I want to look at this morning, and that is the very fact that we are to add to our faith. If you notice in verse number 7, it says in verse number end of verse number six, and in your perseverance, godliness, and verse seven, and your godliness, brotherly, um, brotherly kindness, and of course, in your brotherly kindness, love. And so I want to try to look at all those three this morning. But adding to your faith, godliness, supply 
to your perseverance, godliness. There has to be a sense where these things are connected to one another when where you're if they all lead into becoming godly that godliness is really is an activity of, of a person's life a life of reverent worshipful attitudes and actions and the opposite of the lifestyle of godliness is the lifestyle of corruption through the lusts that are in the world just continuing to live by your old passions and desires. So if you are following and practicing sound doctrine, the truth will lead to a godly life. That's what the Word of God teaches. In fact, I want you to take your Bibles at this point and turn to Titus, right? Titus chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to look at some passages in Timothy 2, just to bolster what godliness actually is. So if you are practicing these things, it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, meaning that the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness, will produce godliness in someone's life. So there are several attitudes and actions recorded in Scripture to help us understand godliness. And the first one is one that I don't want you to look up the passage, but I'll mention what the passage is. And that's simply, it is, the first one is this, it is walking before the eyes of God in a pleasing manner. It's the particular manner of life characterized by reverence towards God or respect for the beliefs and practices related to him in Scripture. Now, go back to the the beginning of the Bible we find in Genesis 5. It says, so the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then the Bible says in verse 24, Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. So that's a long time to be walking before the eyes of God. But he knew he was doing right, and he pleased God, and he, God took him from this world because he was walking with God. In other words, God delighted in that kind of activity, those kind of actions, those kind of beliefs and practices in a person's life. And we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing. So, see, the first thing is that it's a walking with God. Secondly, it's a dutiful behavior of obedience lived out each day before God. And if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's going to be in the area of, in two areas, in the area of prayer and the area of just growing in the Word of God. It is a behavior that is toward God, and it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse number 1 and 2, it says, For all men, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on the behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life, notice, in all godliness and dignity. So in other words, when there is peaceful times, we are to seize those peaceful times to develop the characters, 
the character that God wants us to so we can continue to live a tranquil, that's a kind of a, a, a peaceful life in all godliness. We, we seize that time to grow in godliness. Many times when things are going good, we don't seize that time to grow in godliness. We seize that time for ourselves, for our own selfishness and our own desires to accomplish something that has nothing to do with God's will, just has to do with something we want to do. But that's not what the Bible says, that we are to be spending time before the eyes of God, uh, praying for others and being in the word of God so our life can actually be tranquil and quiet uh, with all godliness and dignity. And then if you know, go down to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, mo- modestly, and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So in other words, a woman living and walking and behaving before the eyes of God uh, in doing these particular things. Uh, where she's looking at the inward person, how important it is to develop the inward person, and then to do the works that God called her to do in this world, and in doing so, she makes a claim for godliness, and that's part of it. And then thirdly, godliness is, is a great, uh, it's a great mystery, the Bible tells us. It is has a mystery sense to it in our uh, the actions that we have on our, our part and also because of the actions accomplished by God on behalf of the sinner. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 15 and 16. This is, uh, it says there, but in verse number 15, chapter 3, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how, you, how one ought to, to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. That's the, that's the manward side of it. Then look at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then it talks about Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. So it's our part and the part that the Lord accomplished come together as we participate in the divine nature. We can only do that based on what Christ actually has done on behalf of sinners who come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And just as Christ was taken up to glory, we also will be taken up to glory. So there's kind of a mystery aspect uh, of godliness. God is working on us, and we are cooperating with him. And then, fourthly, a godly person trains himself diligently in pursuit of godliness. Now, it is this pursuit this diligent pursuit of the responsibility of living found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. I already mentioned that we're responsible to discipline ourselves in godliness, and the Apostle Paul wrote 
about godliness to the young pastor Timothy, and he says in verse 7 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for, brother, uh, for bodily discipline is only a, of little profit. Sorry about that, guys. And then pe- women, too. Uh, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. So remember that this word discipline is the word gymnazo, right? And, of course, that means gymnasium. Uh, we, we get the word gymnasium, and but that also tells us that it is an athletic term that we can become better and more skilled at something if we put the effort into it and we give years of hard practice. So the Christian uh, is really has an automatic gym membership in which they get into the gym and train spiritually. Discipline, it says, yourself for the purpose of godliness. Train to participate in the divine nature. So a godly person trains himself diligently in pursuit of godliness. And then a godly person also desires seeking the right things in life and trusts God's provision in doing that. In other words, it's not riches that godly people seek because the godly person understands the temporary and fleeting nature of focusing one's desire and time on uncertain riches. That at any moment, any moment, that wealth can spread its metaphorical wings and fly away. What does it say in Proverbs 23? It says this, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from considering it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. All you need is a little uh, coronavirus and a, lot, a little bit of fear, and you, you can cripple a whole bunch of people. And there goes your 401k. I thought I was going to retire. Just lost all, all this money the last month, right? As the stock market plum, plummets. It just shows you how unstable everything is. And the only thing that is stable is the, the investment we put in on growing in godliness. That has great gain. Of course, that's talking as a profit. We, we're gaining profit because we are pursuing godliness, and that we, everything could fall away. But does that mean it's all over and that God forsook us? No. It just means that God told us what's going to take place. right? And God hasn't forsaken us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We cannot put our trust in wealth at all whatsoever. Now, in looking at that more further, look at 1 Timothy, being that you're still there, chapter 6, look at verse 3 to verse 11. Just hammering home a little bit that a godly person 
is seeking and desiring the right things on this side of eternity. It says in verse number 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, look at verse 6, go to verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now, I just want to just stress what the Bible is saying. God never promised you a big house or a nice car or a great paying job. He promised you food, daily provisions, clothing, and a place to lay your head. That is it. So if we are going to be content with anything, be content with the simple, simple things of life. Now, this is how a godly person looks at life. They look at life as, in a very simple way, they downsize in a sense. They're not, they're not so enamored by uh, things and possessions and bigger and better and keeping up with the Joneses, as they say. He's not motivated by that anymore. Maybe that used to be your past, but it's no longer your present. And a person can de- desire to be rich and never obtain it. It's the desire that kills you. It's not whether you gain the wealth or not. It's the desire that kills you. It's the quick get-rich-quick schemes that people get into. It's the buying of lottery tickets, thinking you're going to make it big. You know what that's just showing? You don't trust God. You don't trust the Lord. A godly person trusts the Lord. Verse number 9 of 1 Timothy 6, notice notice what it says there, but those who want to get rich, see, they want it, they have a desire for it. What, What happens to them? They fall into temptation, a snare, and many foolish and harmful, notice, desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then in verse 10 it says, for the love, the desire for money, is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, having longed for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But look what it says in verse 11. But flee these things, O man of God, O godly person. Flee these things and pursue what? It doesn't mean that we don't pursue something else. We pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love, and perseverance, and gentleness. Paul is doing the same thing Peter's doing. He's making these lists, these quality lists. And if you're going to do anything in your life, you're going to spend any time in your life doing anything worthwhile, pursue those things. And what happens is that we let too much time go by before we decide to pursue these things. The Bible's saying pursue them now, today. Whatever time you have left, these are the things that you should be spending your time with pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness, pursuing faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. Pursue those things. Jesus wasn't rich. 
He had no money, never married or had a family with a house and an address. He had no social or political status, was not well educated in the worldly standards. He was a hunted criminal, hated, disowned. He he became a suffering servant, died a horrible death at the hands of his accusers, and then was buried in a borrowed tomb. But where were the Lord's desires? See, his desire was fixed on something else. And what was it? Hebrews tells us. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're to do that. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Lord pictured sitting down means the work is finished and complete. It's done. It's done. See, the Lord had a goal. He was heading somewhere. He, from a worldly standard, was a complete failure. But from the standard of the perspective of the plan of God, he was a complete success. And we better thank the Lord for that, or we could never be saved. See, a godly person really seeks and desires the right things in life, trusting God for the provisions. That's what a godly person does. Now, you can see that we are dumping baggage off as we go through these characters, right, these qualities. This is the way I used to be. This is what I used to desire. These, these are the things that I used to pursue, but I'm, I'm not so interested in that anymore. I realize how empty it is, how, how I waste all this time and energy and even money to you know, get where I want to go and find out at the end I, it may not be there. But see, that's not true when we pursue the things of God. It will always be there. God will always be faithful to keep his promises And we can't depend on that when it comes to the world. Also, a last thing is that a godly person doesn't just have a form of godliness. If you look over to 2 Timothy, you're in 1 Timothy, look over to 2 Timothy, a godly person, in other words, is the real deal. Because they believe in God's truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 It says, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and then it tells us, avoid men as these. Avoid those kind of people. So a truly godly person is not to be avoided. They are to be followed, and they are to be imitated. Now, of course, Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, is also dealing with false teachers, that they're teaching false things. And so false teachers are to be avoided because they have, it's the word here for form, is morphe, morphed. They've morphed in the sense the term is used as an action, which means forming or shaping. They were formed and shaped by something. And, of course, they have been shaped by false teaching. And as a result of this shaping, they have an outward form, 
a mere appearance of godliness, but they do not have the substance in the heart of godliness. We don't want to be that kind of person. We want to be the kind of person that is genuine and worship God, worships God from our heart. And God knows who are his. He knows who, who are following him. See, their heart of the false teacher is unchanged and has no desire to live a godly life. They will act religious. And this is, this is the damning qualities of religion. You can get in there, get the lingo, right? Get in there with people who you start understanding what you're supposed to do, and you just go through the motions. And you, and you say, and people think, well, that's a good person, that's a religious person, that's a, a godly person, and that person may not be godly because they just act religious, but they actually reject the power that could make them godly. The Bible says, stay away from people like that. Stay away from people who they have a good talk, but they don't live any of it. And you know someone like that, I know someone like that, and I know many, many people like that. But I tell you what, that's a, that makes the Lord vomit. It should make us upset, too, when we see it in our own selves, when we, are, we end up being hypocritical about something. See, someone could look right. They can speak right. But that does not guarantee that they are speaking the truth. And it doesn't guarantee they're believing, believing what they're speaking. A godly person not only speaks the truth, they believe it and they live it. Of course, not perfectly. So if you're going to be discerning, you must listen to what is not being said as well as what is being said and then take everything and run it through the grid of Scripture. That's what we ought to be doing. It's just like, as Acts tells us, talks about the Bereans, right? It says, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, and then what did they do with it? They examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I think that's the great mistake that we make sometimes. We just read something, we, we think, well, that sounds true, right? and then you just go on believing it, then later on when you're studying the Word of God and you're, you're growing more in the knowledge and wisdom of Scripture, you find out, wow, that's, that's not even true at all. That's like, that's like I was believing that. It is not true. So we should not, we should not estimate truth in terms of results or popularity or crowds or movements which come and go. We need to study people's lives as well as their words. If they don't line up, watch out. And all you have to do is turn on the internet or the TV preachers, and you're going to find out they line up pretty well with Second Peter, what he's going to say about them. But how many thousands and millions of people that follow that? 
And they think because somebody has a big old smile on TV and everything looks so perfect and pristine and, and the quality of everything is like top notch, that because it's like that, it must be true. And that is the furthest deception. Uh, that is the deception and that is Satan. He is, he is skilled at packaging things to lure people in, especially false teaching. That's what he does. And he works through religion. He works through religious systems. We have to watch out for people. That's why it says in Timothy, get away from them. Avoid these people at all costs. See, a godly person is not controlled or directed by trends, by high-profile people, by polished ministries, by popularity or money, or the lust of the flesh, or the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. A godly person is controlled by God's word and desires to do God's will. So godliness really has two directions. The first direction of godliness, it has duty to man. Excuse me, duty to God first. Godliness is always always worships God first and gives him his due. And then, secondly, the second direction of godliness, it's duty to man. Same thing in the Ten Commandments. First part of it is Godward. Second part of it is now this is how we're supposed to live in relationship to one another. It's, that's the, always the trend for all scriptures. Always God's first. And then others. So when you are godly in your heart toward God, you are also at the same time dying to your sin and yourself. That's happening at the same time. Things are changing. My views are changing. My reason for living is changing. Everything is changing in my heart and mind because of the Word of God and what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. And then when that happens, when that happens, you start taking notice and start paying attention to other people. All right? So, in other words, godliness leads to brotherly affection. That's where it leads. It leads to brotherly affection. So true salvation changes our relationship with God because one's belief in Christ brings us into the family of God, which makes God our Father. And when God is our Father and we know the Lord as our Savior, we discover in the Word of God that God's method to bring us from sin to a godly life is first to make us know that he loves his children because of their belief in Christ. They know that their sins are blotted out, that God's children's consciences have been purged from the guilt of sin by the offering of Christ, and therefore they know they are washed and made clean by the blood of Christ, made right before him, and now are friends of God. When that takes place and we are reconciled to God, we realize, wow, I am now born into the family of God. 
we, de- we desire to love and serve God, but at the same time, we desire to love and serve others. So true service to God must not proceed at all from hope or reward or fear of punishment, but only from the love that God first loved us, and then we understand his love toward us, we love God and others. So we grow in godliness in our affections for God and become inflamed towards him in our heart. Our affections are moved, and then when our affections are moved for God and we grow in our love for him, our desires for the fleshly things, for the worldly things grow less and less as we are inclined to love God more and more. But that's not where it ends. At that point, at that juncture, we are readied to do something that we really never knew how to do before. And that is, as cleansed and purified people that are now participating in the divine nature and growing in their vertical relationship with God, it spills over into our horizontal relationship with others. So we're probably asking, what what is it that we never knew how to do before? Well, it's it's really right here in first second first uh, excuse me second Peter that we are to add in your godliness brotherly kindness and to your brotherly kindness love so you and I really never knew how to genuinely love one another matter of fact that's something we're still learning husbands are still learning how to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Wives are still learning how to respect their husbands and love them in that way. Children are still discovering how to love their parents, how to be obedient. We are discovering and growing how to love God, but we are also learning how to and discovering how to love people because it is not easy to love people. We need divine help for that. So next time I'm going to look at that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Lord, we lost an hour. And um, sometimes the hour messes up with our flesh. But I just pray, Lord, this morning that just the, the simplicity of the word of God would resonate in our hearts and our minds. That... These things are a reality for all believers. They are not something out there that we can't have. They are something that are given to us already, but we are to participate in adding them to our faith. So I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the Word of God, and I just ask you, Lord, that we would evaluate our life based on these things, not based on anything else, not even based on our old skewed understanding of how we should evaluate ourselves, but how you evaluate us and how we're to be evaluated by Scripture. And I pray, Lord, in doing so, the things that we're not adding to our faith, I pray, Lord, that we would 
come before you in prayer, repent of those things that we have been desiring in a fleshly way. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to give us the strength uh, and endurance to put those things into practice and that we would learn and practice how to participate in the divine nature, which goal is to make us like Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Oh uh-huh.